John, the author of the Gospel of John, the author of the letters of John, where we're currently studying, wrote Revelation, given a view of heaven. He says in Revelation 4, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones, 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes, front and back and behind. First living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third creature at the face of a man, the fourth creature like an eagle in flight. Four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes around and within, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Later in chapter 5, they looked and heard around the throne the living creatures said the elders, the voice of many angels, numbered myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. The one true God, the one who's worthy of all of our lives, all of our devotion, all of our worship. The one who we war against in our sin. In our sin that blinds us to his truth, to his love, to his beauty. So desperate for our Savior, Christ Jesus, new birth. So blessed for those who are given that new birth to know Him, love Him, and worship Him now and forever. Amen? If you flip there, Revelation 4 or 5, you just got to go back a couple pages to get to Second John. That's how close to the end we are in the totality of the 66 books of the Word of God, canon of Holy Scripture. 
We're in 2 John, continuing the letters of John, and what a joy it's been to study and to preach, and I'm excited for this sermon today called Abiding in Gospel Truth as we study verses 9 through 11. Look at with me at 2 John 9 through 11. Here's our text of focus this morning. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 2 John 9-11 through The first thing I want to draw to your attention in the early part of verse 9 is John's reference to the teachings of Christ can be a reference to Christ's actual teachings or essentially God's Word, Christ, Son of God, who is God, the Word of God, the truth of God, He who is truth, His Word, the Holy Word of God, Holy Scripture. But it also, on the other side of the coin, teachings of Christ can be teachings about Christ. The testimony of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We call it the gospel. Gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to address both this morning because they're both very fitting for all that we read in the New Testament and for John's emphasis here for us today. Looking at the first side of this, the first side of the coin of the teachings of Christ, John says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide, stay fixed, stay, stay committed to the teaching of Christ. He is speaking of those who go past what is written in God's Word. Which includes the teaching of the apostles and the prophets that God ordained to give His Word. Okay, This is then, this practice is to include or value, or look to other things as authoritative in our lives. As helpful, as as needed, in place of, or in addition to, to put them on the same plane as the Word of God, as the teachings of Christ. He's essentially saying is to believe other things, to add other things. The problem is our call in Scripture is to abide in Christ and his teachings. That means we're to stay fixed. We're to, they're to be sufficient alone. They don't, they're not, there's not a part of the recipe that's missing. It's all that we need and it's all that we cling to. To abide, that, that, that word abide is to remain to be fixed, to be faithfully dependent on. So therefore then to not abide, as he's staying in the first part of this verse, is to move on. It is to wander about. It is to run around. To not be faithful, to, to, to run around. It is to be flippy-floppy and wishy-washy. It, it is to add to. It is to count something else as good and worthy to be trusted. Church, there's so many warnings in Scripture about adding to the Word of God. 
especially given our focus last week. If you're just joining us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the preaching in the last few verses in John's emphasis about the deceivers. This today is very much in context with that, right? So, so the deceivers, they're adding, their deception is that it kind of looks close, but it's not, it's different. The word is clear. We're not to add or take away from God's word. And we, we hear this, we read about that command in the beginning of Scripture and at the end, a quick taste of that. Deuteronomy 4, 2. You shall not add to the word I command you, nor take from it, that you keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Later in chapter 12, Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The Apostle Paul commends the Corinthian church to not go beyond what is written in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Revelation 22, the end of the Bible, chapter 22, 18-19. I warn everyone who hears these words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. We are not to add anything to the holy word of God, the teachings of God, the truths of God. We are not to take anything away from it and omit it and ditch it. The Word of God is sufficient to lead us in our lives, our relationships, our families, our church, to thrive in this life righteously, to honor God in all things, and then life everlasting. Christian, you do not need new revelation. You possess the Word of God, and He says it's complete. You don't need progressive ideas for us to advance. You don't need worldly counsel to add, to figure it out. God's Word is sufficient. We should never wander from this sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to define us, to inspire us, to teach us to hold us accountable. My prayer is that we would fight the temptation to long for something more. To somehow deem this insufficient. No, I need something else. I need a sign. I need a miracle. I need something else. Jesus taught on this very topic. He gave a parable in Luke 16, 19-31. Look at it with me. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day at the gate. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides, all this between us and you as a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If we use some human futile reasoning, we might understand what's trying to be done here. This is really bad. If I'm going to send a sign to my beloved brothers, let's, let's send something that's powerful and influential. But what we must not miss, church, is that this is powerful and influential. The Word of God. His word is more than enough because he is the one who makes it active in all that he intends to know and hear it. Clearly, perfectly. God's word is better than anything else we might be tempted to put in its place. Any experience, any tradition, any of our best reason or logic. And yet, let me just lovingly press on you who claim Christ belong to Him. Where have you been tempted in your life as of late to hold equal to this your experience, your tradition, your reason or logic? Because it cannot be. Sola Scriptura is a big word out of the Reformation that we, that we love. It's defined this way. Scripture alone. The inherent Holy Scripture is to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. We deny that any creed, counsel, or individual may bind the Christian's conscience. We deny the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to what is set forth in the Bible. We deny that personal spiritual experience can override what the Bible teaches. There cannot be another authority. You don't need any form of new revelation. God who is perfect has deemed that this is sufficient. And all you need. (laughs) 
Holy Scripture is our ultimate and trustworthy authority for faith and practice. Everything else we learn about God and His Word and this world, all other authorities were to interpret all of that in light of this, in light of the teachings of the Lord. The Bible gives us everything we need. Our very own statement of faith as a church is in agreement with this. It goes like this. We believe the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, written word. The Bible is completely true and without error in its original manuscripts. The Holy Bible is sufficient and the final authority for our understanding of God and His will for His creation. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 Sadly, there are preposters, there are proponents who, even in this very city, stand on the stage and do some kind of magical dance of I've got a word for someone who's got pink socks on on the couch in the, in the room and you're to know this. That's new revelation. That is not biblical. That's not God's word is sufficient. We come, we gather around the word of God, the truths of God. You are to test everything I say to this. So how do we obey God's word alone and not the opinions of man? How do we know how to teach and not give way to our opinions? The answer must be to test our understanding of Scripture with Scripture. This is called, in fancy words, the analogy of the faith. The analogy of faith means sacred Scripture is its own interpreter. The analogy of faith is a hermeneutical, that's a Bible study tool, principle, which states that all Scripture are harmoniously united with no essential contradictions. Therefore, every proposed interpretation of any passage is understood according to the rest of Scripture, in light of Scripture. The faith or body of doctrine, which the Scriptures as a whole proclaim will not be contradicted in any way by any passage. And if it looks like it's doing that, then we're reading it wrong. God's not a God of confusion. He'll give us the clarity we need according to the Word. And we must not be careful to interpret Scripture according to man's preferences or our traditions. And if we're honest, we're all tempted to that. I, too, have had junctions of study, of preparation, where I have been tempted to want to tell you what I want to say, what I want this to look like. We, as elders, have come to junctions of theology where we've had to take many years to slow down. Some, some of those were because I knew of the temptation that I was struggling with to want the outcome of how we'd study that to fall a certain direction. And I wasn't ready to do it until I was ready to let this interpret this and inform us and lead us. No matter how hard that would be. That we'd make war with our traditions. We'd make war with our personal preferences. And allow God's good word to lead us and correct us and send us forth. We trust the Holy Scriptures because they're God's Word, church. 
They do not merely contain God's word. They are God's word. We trust the Holy Scriptures because the Bible is inerrant. It is without errors in its original manuscripts. Now, why do we add that caveat? Because we're blessed to have God's word in our language, but that's translation from the original Greek and Hebrew, from the original manuscripts. And so there is nuanced work we work hard to do, that while we're blessed to know and study God's word in our language, as there's many other people groups that are efforts are being made to, to write the Bible in their language so they can better study it and understand it, right? And this is a blessing. Please, count it as a blessing. Don't be frustrated about it. Can you imagine how much longer it would take you to understand God's word if you had to all learn Greek and Hebrew first? It is a blessing. But this is also why you have teachers and preachers and, and theologians that surround us to help, to help protect it. And so, yes, there are some historic places in modern prints of the Bible that we would argue are not to be counted as the authoritative Word of God because they weren't in the original manuscripts. And we're serious about that. No matter how much we like those particular passages. And it's not to say that some of that might not even be good. We just want to be really serious about what God's Word really is and that we really give all of our lives to it. The Bible is without errors. Truth and error are incompatible. Light, like light and, light and darkness, incompatible. God's Word is without error. It is inerrant. We also trust the Holy Scriptures because the Bible is infallible. It cannot fail. It cannot fail to speak the truth. As Jesus said in John 10.35, it cannot be broken. For all of its individual words are true. Scripture has no contradiction in its parts. The Bible was written by fallible men, but God so breathed on them, inspired them in the Holy Spirit to record, even in His perfect Sovereignty through their personalities, what he wants us to have in his word. Praise God that he has preserved it like no other antiquity in history. It, it has been passed to the generations and proven in its copies of copies of copies like few others. God's word in our possession, our language, is a wonderful gift, church. Hear the famous words of Paul as a wonderful synopsis of everything I've just said. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, 16-17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me ask you, do you truly believe that God's Word is fully sufficient for your teaching, your reproof, your correction, your training in righteousness, that you will be complete and equipped for every good work? That you don't need a word from a dead relative? You don't need insight from a guru or a miracle to show you the way? God's Word is sufficient. The teachings of Christ are sufficient. Amen? God's Word, church, is sufficient. And let me just show you a few verses that show us the variety and the plethora of this. God's Word is sufficient in our temptation. 
Satan comes to Jesus after fasting. His flesh is hungry and tired. There's a reality of his flesh, and even in his perfection outside of sin, that the flesh is experiencing these things. Satan drops off temptation like you and I have never faced. And in every one of those temptations presented to Jesus, Jesus responds with, It is written. It's the only weapon he needed. Sufficient in our, tempta- in our temptation, church. God's word is sufficient for guidance. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We don't love that verse, but then picture it like a little flashlight where I need to get some battery packs and some floodlights to really go to work. No, no, no. It is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for salvation. 1 Peter 1.23 Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. John 8.31-32 Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's word is sufficient, church, for sanctification. That's a big, fancy church word. Sanctification is being made more holy. It's being becoming more like Christ. It is maturing in righteousness. That is sanctification, a process of becoming more holy. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What does that mean? It means there's days where the soul needs some reviving, where I'm knocked down, I'm clunked down in a hole, I'm... I'm struggling. The Word of God brings us through that. Helps us. It keeps us moving down the road. God's Word is sufficient for glorifying God. John 15, 7-8 If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for what you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God's word is sufficient for life change. Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you need some life change? The word of God is the tool you need for it. The word of God carries with it the very power of God. Bible is the Spirit's Word. Church, we do not need to abide in anything else. We, need to build our, we don't need to build our lives on anything else. What is bigger and better than God's Word? Nothing. So again, listen to this verse. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. John's reference to the teachings of Christ can be a reference to the actual teachings of Christ, or as we just talked about, the totality of God's Word, His truth. But again, the other side of that coin is it can also be the teachings about Christ, the testimony of the Gospel of Jesus. So here Jesus say Himself in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. 
The other side of the coin is just as true. The person who moves past the gospel of Jesus doesn't have God. Because Christ is sufficient. The gospel of Jesus is sufficient. The error of many modern day false religions or beliefs is what I like to call or refer to as Jesus plus. Where someone says, I love Jesus, I like Jesus, I have Jesus, but then, but then they have add-ons or, or, or subtractions, the, the things we're not supposed to do. They claim to be for Jesus in some way, but in the end they're really against him. As we go back to the first letter, this is much of the nature of the very deceivers, as we talked about last week, and Antichrist were. They weren't wholesale looking like they were completely from something out of the ground. They, they, they said that they were good with God. They said they had Jesus, but they brought deception. They added People like to pick parts of Jesus they like, but then throw away the parts they don't. Or they'll embrace much of what he says about himself, but then they twist things or add things. If you add anything to Jesus to be saved, you have falsified the gospel. You have a false testimony of the gospel. For God's word is clear that Jesus is enough. So the gospel is not Jesus plus water baptism or circumcision. That's another gospel. To be saved. The the gospel is not Jesus plus a denominational tradition. That's another gospel. The, the gospel is not Jesus plus speaking in tongues, like some will espouse must be done. That's another gospel. The, the, the gospel is not Jesus plus my good deeds. Those are all false gospels because they proclaim that Christ is not sufficient in himself, that it's not finished. That the, that the Father doesn't receive his testimony, his substitutional atonement alone. We've got to add something to it. The sauce needs something else. That's a false gospel. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And so I, I need to be clear with you today. And while salvation belongs to the Lord and He knows what what you and I can't do is be contrary to this clear teaching of God's Word and have some kind of different thing that we say to people that's different than this. And so let me show you how this breaks down because we've got to get real with it. If you believe in the Holy Scriptures plus the revelation of Joseph Smith, Mormonism, You don't have God. That's added stuff. It's another gospel. It's a different God. I know that many of the Mormons you know are really sweet people. They really truly are. And yet you remember me also saying that some of the greatest deception comes in some real sweetness. 
They don't believe in the Christ you believe in. I know they say they're Christians. I know they say they love Jesus. It is a completely different team. If you believe in the Holy Scriptures plus the teachings of Chaz Taze Russell and the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't have God. You've added to the Holy Word of God. They don't believe in the Christ of the Holy Scriptures. They say they do. It's a false gospel. If you believe in the Holy Scriptures plus the science and health of Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian scientist, you don't have God. You have a false gospel. You have added authority. If you believe in the Holy Scriptures plus the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, you don't have God. Now I know how big the Catholic Church is in our day, and so let's talk about that for a moment. Because I think this one in particular is one where many Christians are guilty of kind of playing nice in a way that I would argue is completely against the very scripture we're studying today. Disciples Church, this church, 133-year-old church, is a Protestant church. That means that we stand with the historic protesters like Martin Luther and John Calvin who did a most faithful and heroic work in their day to give up their lives to stand against the dominant Roman Catholic Church and its many false doctrines and practices. Think about that. The Roman Catholic Church has been one of the most dominant and popular religions in the world and still is. But it is false. It is littered with error, unbiblical convictions and practices and authority. 2 John 9a, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The Protestant Reformation centered around essentially five core doctrines. Doctrines you can't get wrong or you have a different God and a different gospel. Five areas where the Roman Catholic Church had added to Holy Scripture and added to the belief that Jesus alone was sufficient for salvation. In overly simplistic terms, they, the church's false doctrine and unbiblical teaching centered around how they added to the sufficiency of Jesus and his word. So quickly, a taste of those five. They believe, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Holy Scripture is good. And that's where you're like, okay, cool. But they also teach that you also have to have the church's tradition and the the writings outside of the canon of Scripture that are, that are as authoritative as the Word of God. So what the Pope says is as authoritative as what you read here. That's extra-biblical. Grace of God, they'll say, is needed for salvation, but they also believe that man plays a part and contributes his efforts. Therefore, nullifying grace. Faith is needed for salvation, but also they believe works play a part, play a critical role. Christ's atonement is good for salvation, but also they believe man's inherent righteousness plays a part. So Catholics are very, very into that. There's something in them that's a part of that cocktail. They'll say the glory of God is why we live, and also the glory of the Roman Catholic Church. Five doctrines that were so heavily contested and debated became known as, in the Reformation, the five solas, because the 
the reformation, the refining of those gross errors came back to that word sola is a Latin phrase for alone or only. Our deep and unbending conviction with all the reformers, the Protestant view that's against the Roman Catholic Church, clearly is that God's word clearly teaches this alone, not what someone else's tradition says. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It's not God's Word plus the other writings and traditions that are authoritative. It's not faith in Christ plus what I contribute that saves me. It's not God's glory and some part of the glory of man or the church that we live for. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We don't need to, we should not, we cannot add anything. And those who do, John makes it clear, do not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. We do not need to add anything to the gospel of Jesus or, or ever try to move away from the gospel of Jesus. For what you end up with is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Those sound like great words. Let me read it to you. They're from Holy Scripture. Galatians 1, 6-7. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later in chapter 2, he says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Those who added to the gospel of Jesus, those who were not walking faithfully in the gospel of Jesus, proved that they did not have God. They believed in a different God altogether. A different Christ, a different road. And Jesus said so clearly himself in John 5, 23, whoever does not have the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't reject Jesus and his teaching and then get somehow to the Father. I, I, I pray we hear this important point of clarity and take it to heart today. While those who add or take away from God's word and gospel of Jesus, while they have physical life now, they don't have God. And there's nothing more serious or disastrous for them than that. And you're not loving them to say like, yeah, you've got a cross on your arm or your neck, or you say Jesus, yay, Jesus. So we're on the same team. There's way too much deception. That's not what that is. If what they're professing is the Christ of Holy Scripture, independence on Him alone for salvation, and nothing else that we do or add, they're believing in the, in, the, in the Jesus of the Bible, then yeah, then we're on the same team. But you go outside of it. You go outside of this. You go outside of Christ. You're on a different team. Look, look with me at the positive side of this because I think it helps. And John goes here. Look at the next part of the verse. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Again, to abide is to continue, to dwell, to remain, to be fixed in Christ and His truth. To abide is to stay plugged into the source of life and truth, which is Christ Himself. We don't thrive in the Christian life, church, by turning or unplugging. It's in those seasons, and you know it better than anyone, that you struggle, you drift, you wander, you're full of worry, you're, you're, you're caught up in temptation, you're letting idols of the heart have their way with you, you're, you're giving yourself to sin. To abide is to remain constantly in Christ, pondering His Word, acting for His glory, living out of who He is. You're, you're desperate for Him. And so the illustration I've used, and there's, there's some newer folks here, so I want to use it again. It's helpful. Christ is not like a defibrillator, where He jumpstarts your heart, gives you life, and then you're good. You're like, I got Jesus and I'm good. I got this shock one day. and I No, He's more like a pacemaker. You needed something to happen to you. This is true. But you don't like get Jesus and then just move on. No, no, you are desperate for Him, depending on Him every day. You don't rip that thing out of your chest and go, dude, I'm doing good today. No, you, you, you lean in, you're, you abide, you, you, you draw. It's why Jesus' analogy in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, is so perfect. When He says, I am the vine... You are the branches. Whoever abides in me remains fixed, clinging, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and it's just so elementary and helpful. A branch separated from the vine is a dead branch. And that branch can't go fix itself to the rock or to the fence and start growing fruit. It doesn't work that way. It has one source for life and one hope for ongoing fruit in life, and that is to be fixed, grafted and fixed and clinging to the vine, the source of life. This is our desperation to abide in Jesus, and it's not a one-time thing, it's not a momentary thing, it's not a Sundays for an hour thing. It is a every minute of the day, walking, talking, abiding Trusting in, drawing on Him who is life. Our abiding in Christ and His Word, His commands, His truths are how we are then affirmed that we do indeed know and trust in God. That we've been born again, that we're walking in the truth. Listen to how Jesus spoke to our faithful abiding in Christ and, and His Word, and therefore then in God. John 14, 23-24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep, there's that, abiding, keep my word. And my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Second John, second part of verse 9. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You cannot know and enjoy the one true God, God the Father, without Jesus. This is why all the other Gospels 
don't work. This is why the little coexist thing is bogus. You get rid of the cross and Christianity, and it worked. It's all a bunch of false roads. But you can't coexist with what... And, and so you, people will say, oh, the sensitive people will say, well, that's, that's harsh, that's judgmental. No, it's just truth. And it's not my truth, it's Jesus' truth. Don't include him who is clear to say, I'm the only way. I don't coexist with all these others. There's one truth, there's one way, there's one Savior, there's one mediator between God and man. Listen, listen to it. The famous John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't believe in this Jesus and add to him or take away. Or, or skip him entirely. And Muhammad or someone else fits. No. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Listen to how John spoke to our faithful abiding in God's truth and therefore God himself in the first letter. Let me remind you of where we've been in John's first letter, speaking of these things, the same deceivers are about. 1 John 2, 4-5 Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. See, some of you who maybe weren't here for the earlier teaching in the earlier parts of the letter, you're feeling like, pastor's really like harsh today. I have not said this yet. God's Word, this is God's Word. Let me read it again, in case you were tuned out, thinking about something else. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And then in chapter 3, 1 John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. There's no greater prize than to know God than to be his. There's no greater reality than to abide in God and enjoy his glory. Spent the last couple of days with all of my family up at my dad's former residence. It's not his house anymore. He's in a new house. Died a couple of weeks ago. He's one of nine children born to a stout, committed Roman Catholic family. The only one in the earliest years coming out of high school by God's grace was given saving faith in Jesus and converted to Protestant Bible-based Christian faith. Married a sweet little Christian girl. Had some kids that God commissioned to go on and do some of his work. 
some of these people that you're thinking about, that you love, that are caught up in deception, that the Lord is converting many of them. All right? So he is able. But we have to be careful about how we interact with those who are active agents of the deception. And so, turn with me to the next part and look with me at verse 10 and 11. He says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, to be clear, this is not a charge to turn away from unbelievers. Don't hear me say, like, we the church have to find holy huddles and we're never around lost people. You know, unbeliever walks to your door and you have to go hide in the closet. I'm not it's not that. <laughs> Hospitality to those who are different than us, those who are lost in sin, is a major part of why we're here. Some of you need the opposite counsel. You need to get out of some of your holy huddles and have a little more exposure with some really lost people. To be a light, to be a help, to show them what the love of God is. Uh, I mean, we need to look no further. Plethora of scriptures to help us see that. I mean, the Good Samaritan's one. Right? So, so that's not what this is in reference to. Um, those who are dead in sin, needing a Savior, we, we need to be a light of the gospel for them. The specific nature of this command is for those who are false teachers. They espouse a different gospel, a false gospel. They are active deceivers. They're active wolves. They've been clearly identified as being anti-Christ and are doing something about it. John, 2 John 11. Notice that he says, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's an important clarity. We see throughout Scripture, our participation needs to be checked with wicked people. We're not to be an unaccountable space. Those who do evil things, that it links us with them. We need to be mindful of the false testimony, the simple ways that it might look like we're participating in. These are threatening emissaries of the devil that John goes so far to say, don't even greet these people. Now, that doesn't mean we act like jerks and don't say hello. Okay? It, it, that, well, the emphasis here is to greet them and, and take them in. It, it's to show them hospitality. It's, it's, it's to bring them in. It, it's, to, it's to receive them the way you would receive a brother. There's an endorsement, a perceived camaraderie that we are not to have with false diabolical teachers. We are not to be unequally yoked with them. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or fellowship with light and darkness. So there's, there's a mindfulness. There's a carefulness to the, to the extent of the relationship. With unbelievers, 
And what John's saying here is it should be even further with, with the active agents of false gospels and deception. Right? So, so there, there are proponents of false gospels in this town who people would call pastors who I wouldn't sit in a pastor's meeting with. Because that would show a camaraderie, a validation of their message that's unbiblical in my breaking bread with them or looking like we're doing some kind of pastoral thing for our community. False teachers, godless heathens of our lost society, secular people, are going to call such diligence or careful avoidance, they're going to call it harsh. They're going to call it intolerant. They're going to call it unloving. But, Scripture is clear, they don't know love. Why? Because God is love. So we don't bend because people are saying bad things about us. There's people who say bad things about us, about me and our elders, because we speak and hold the truth. And there's any moment of time where that could get real loud, where they could be out on the corners every Sunday. Okay. The, the scriptures are clear. They don't get it. It's folly to them. Right? What they call love is not love. Right? We, we know the love of God. We know God who is light, and we live there. We, we don't bend to please man or for the accolades or for the avoidance of stuff. Right? We don't provide room for the lies of the enemy to, to make their bed when, when those lies are, have an aim of, of deceiving and taking captive. And, and all throughout the New Testament we saw, we saw much of it last week, just a quick taste, Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, again, very, very, we're not, really looking for the ravenous wolf that's scary from 10 miles away. We're looking for the person who looks really kind and sweet and good and everything's great and is a ravenous wolf. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We don't greet or take into our house active thieves. Right? You need to think about the folly of that. Oh, come in. Here's your room. Here's the key. I'm going to work. I'll be back. And you come back and the house is empty. Right? You brought in a thief. That's what they do. You make a bed. You make a spot on your bed for a snake. You're getting bit. That's what they do. Listen to how Paul describes these in 2 Timothy 3, 5-7. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. People will come, they look like they're learning, but they're never really landing in truth. There's never real conviction. There's never real accountability. They're wolves. As shepherds, we're, we're watching for men like this who look real sweet, look like they're making some good progress, looking to, to gain the, the eye, the, the trust, the affections of our sisters. 
It's why we're really serious, male or female. If you're falling in love with someone who we don't know, we're, we're not interested just if they say they're a Christian. Parents, that should not be good enough for you, for your, for your young adult children. Why? Because of deceivers <laughs> who really want what they want and they're after it. Are they involved? Are they accountable to a godly church? Are there men and women who know them and can vouch for them, can vouch for their repentance, for their faithfulness? That there's a track record there. They're not on the sidelines. They're not saying, oh yeah, no, I, I was in the church for 30 years and, and I know all this stuff. Yeah, red flag, red flag, red flag. Where are you accountable? Where are you committed? Where are you humble? No, that's really where I want to be. Great. Let's do that for the next number of months and years. And then you can talk about a lifetime with this person that I love. Why? Because I've seen a lot of people come in and woo a heart and get through an altar and then completely tornado a home. And now you are two who become one until death do you part. And we take that seriously too. There's a seriousness to this church for all of us. All of us. Don't forget how crafty and deceitful these people are. Remember the passage I read you last week. Galatians 1, 8 through 10. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, even if we, that's the apostles, that's me, that's, that's your shepherds, is what's represented there. You have to test what we're teaching you. According to this, we need to be held accountable to it. We don't get to earn your trust and then you let that go. No, that's to remain. We're to, we to continue in that. We're doing that for each other. We elders are listening. We're doing that to check and to walk the nuances. Steve gave me three little particular little word things I said off the cuff for a sermon that just weren't quite right. And he's loving me well, he's loving you well. Tuck that in. Yeah. I'm serious about it. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We say it before, we'll say it again. If anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I want to conclude here, as I love this emphasis of Paul, is it's the heart of what John's words are saying. Paul, who was a man pleaser to the nth degree, successful and massively converted from his false thing he was a part of converted by the power of God and now a servant of Christ we are to be faithful to Christ and his word we are to be steadfast and abiding in him fixed and grounded in his word this is the one who belongs to God the one who he has saved, the one who he is keeping and growing and convicting of sin unto repentance.
We do not try to please man. We live for the audience of one. Amen? I love that verse. Do you know where that verse is? Here it is, 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Love that. May this be our enduring testimony until God takes us home to glory. Amen? Pray with me, and then we're going to worship the one true God, the mediator, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. God, you're just doing so much good stuff. What better thing to do with our Sunday morning to gather and study and grow and mature in our faith, to enjoy our fellowship, our camaraderie in worship, in the Lord's Supper, and prayer, and looking to encourage one another. Um, you are blessing us with these teachings in the second letter and of John, and, and the warnings, the, the clarities are needed. We in our society have found ways to, to dilute it, to, to be soft, to, to make nice. And, and there's too much at stake. Lord, that said, let the love of Christ be at work in us. That we don't hear these things and become punks. That we, we really do love you and love others. We really do love our enemies. We just love them in truth. And not the way that they demand us to love them. Really, truly... Help us to see and savor the one true mediator, Christ our Lord. Make much of him, those who are still dead in sin, to give them saving faith in Christ alone. It is because of the authority of Scripture alone that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Glory be your name. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.